Welcome to the newest episode of the In All Things podcast, where we host conversations with diverse voices about living creatively in God's created world. I'm your host, Justin Ariel Bailey, and I teach at Dort University, which is home to the Andreas Center, the sponsor of this podcast. On this episode of the podcast, you're speaking with the poet Drew Jackson about his recently published collection of poems in conversation with the Gospel of Luke. We talk about the process of writing poetry and the relationship of poetry, pastoral ministry, and prayer. A highlight of this episode is when Drew reads two of his poems so that we can hear them in his voice. It's a conversation that stretched my imagination, and I hope it will stretch yours as well. I haven't always loved poetry. Like many school children, I had to memorize short poems as soon as I could read. But although I enjoyed the sound and rhythm of poetry, I never really thought about reading poetry in my free time. When I did encounter it, say in reading Lord of the Rings, I would be riveted by the prose, but skip over the poetic songs that Tolkien would put in his characters' mouths. Throughout my 20s, I was mostly ambivalent to poetry. I knew it had some value. I did not see it as clear, compelling, or memorable as other forms of creative writing. It's only been in the last few years that my appreciation for poetry has begun to grow. I came to realize that the writing I most loved, I loved for poetic reasons, because of the weight of words, arranged just this way. The best words in the best order, as Coleridge put it. There are some things that can only be adequately expressed in poetic language. And now in my 40s, I gravitate towards poetry because I need it to slow me down, to teach me to pay attention, the sort of attention that I need to write, to pray, and to love. Last year, I discovered the poetry of Drew Jackson. After he published God Speaks Through Wombs, a collection of poems in conversation with the first nine chapters of Luke's Gospel, Jackson moved through the Gospel, passage by passage, with the poet's sensibilities. He's also a pastor, the founding pastor of Hope East Village in New York City, and he's now completed the second collection of poetry, which covers the rest of Luke's gospel, Touch the Earth. It was our privilege to interview him on the podcast. On this episode, I was joined by two colleagues, Howard Scopp and Rose Postma, who are specialists in poetry and creative writing, and the result was a scintillating conversation on the process of writing poetry and the way that all of us are called to exercise our poetic imagination. So without further ado, here's our conversation with Drew Jackson. I'm joined now by three guests. First, my guest co-hosts, Rose Postma and Howard Scopp, resident literary aficionados. Rose, Howard, thanks for hosting with me. This is great. Yeah, thanks for having me. And our featured guest is Drew Jackson, whose poetry we are discussing today. He's recently published the second of two poetry collections inspired by and in conversation with Luke's gospel. And that volume is entitled Touch the Earth, Poems on the Way. Drew, thanks for joining us on the In All Things podcast. Thanks, Justin. It's so good to be with you, Rose Howard. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, so as I mentioned, you've written these two collections of poetry in conversation with a biblical text. And in addition to being a poet, you're also a pastor and a preacher. And so I wonder how you see those vocations, the priestly, the prophetic, and the poetic coming together in the way you approach your work with words. 
Yeah, such a good question. I mean, to me, I, I, there's it's been a journey for me to discover how tied those things are together, the, the, the pastoral and the poetic. I mean, you know, as a pastor and as a, as a preacher, right, I'm working with words all the time. And it really wasn't until someone actually pointed it out to me hmm. that my, my sermons are very poetic, right? So that, and this was before I even sort of was writing poetry seriously. Wow. It was coming through in my sermons. And so someone hmm. actually named that for me <laughs> and was part of calling that out of me to say, you need to you need to attend to this part of of who you are right but i think it's it's crucial to to sort of understand that right even when we're we're reading scripture we're reading the prophets we're reading those who are doing pastoral work in the text right there's so much poetry that's embedded all throughout uh the biblical text that we're engaging with it all, all the time when we're doing theology right um, poetry is such right. a part of that. And so I think it's just part of what I what I am always trying to do in my pastoral work is to have people in, engage with scripture, like the poetic aspects of scripture to say, you know, th- this changes how we read the text and how the text reads us as well. Right. Mm. That this isn't when, when we when you come to a poem, right, you're not just coming to it to say, OK, what is the plain meaning of this? Right. But there's so many layers to a poem. There's the there's the emotional layer to it. Right. There's the sort of metaphorical layers to it. There's the communal. There's the social. There's all these sorts of things that are happening. And it's not always just saying one thing. And so I think when we're when we when we come to the biblical text, we are in many ways invited to sort of experience it in a similar way to hear you know, the, the multiple voices that are, that are present within a particular text and to pay attention to the emotional parts of who we are and to, 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 to name that that's part of how God made us, right? That's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. So how, you know, how can I pay attention to that part of me, even as I'm engaging the text and the imaginative part of me? So, yeah, I mean, that's even part of the pastoral work as I do is, you know, let's pay attention to our full selves, even as we're coming to the text. That's wonderful. I love that that sense of you are almost helping people form their own poetic imagination, which everyone has uh, as you as you preach and as you work as a poet. I wonder if you think of yourself and your work as exercising different sorts of muscles, though, uh, when you uh, write a poem versus when you preach. I think of my own work as a theology professor who occasionally preaches, sort of sometimes like being in classes where we can explore all the different possibilities. But then I feel like when I preach, I get up and I, I need to make some claims, right? I need to say, this this is what the Lord says to us at this moment in history. I wonder if you could speak a bit about exercising those different muscles um, yeah. within poetic imagination. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's that's huge. There is a difference. There definitely is a difference. I think. I've often I've often said that one of the reasons that poetry, the writing of poetry, became really uh, central for me as a practice, and I, I, you know, I see both the reading and the writing of poetry as a spiritual practice for me. Mm. But part of it was because right, I really started writing in the form that I'm writing at the beginning of the pandemic. Right, I needed I needed something uh, that was going to be spacious enough to mm. hold the mystery and the questions. Um, that I had that were rising up in me with obviously everything that's going on in our world, 
with the pandemic, but also with, you know, racial violence and all of these sorts of things that I'm wrestling with. And, um, you know, with preaching, you named it, right. There's this sense of you come to it and you have to, you have to make a claim. That's the expectation, right. Or you're, you're sort of providing some sort of answer or some sort of something for somebody to hold on to. But to be honest, there was just this sense of me was like, you know what? I don't know that I have an answer right now. Mm. And, and I think that part of what we need right now within the space of the church is not just answer, not just like sort of pat answers that we're often given sometimes, but space enough to to wrestle with the questions and to mm-hmm. to learn to be okay with mystery, with not knowing that that is actually part of our formation, right? Um, that even when uh, Jesus was doing his work of discipleship. Right. So much of what Jesus does is not necessarily give people straight answers, but invite them more deeply into a question. Right. Mm. It's it, it reminds me a lot of Rilke, the poet Rilke, his his uh, comment in his letters to a young poet when he says, live the questions. Right. Learn to love the questions. And there's something about that is that's such an instrumental part of our formation to be OK with living living inside of the mystery and the questions. And Roka says, one day, eventually, you may live your way into the answers. But what matters is to live everything, right? And so mm-hmm. I think that that's like, I think we as pastors and as preachers can learn something from that, that not everything has to be a, a hard claim that this is what it is. Like, maybe the invitation is embrace the mystery of this mm-hmm. of this present moment, because there's something uh, of God, something of the divine that we discover in mystery that we don't discover anywhere else. So I am really interested in process, um, Mm -hmm. how you structure, put things together. And what really in part drew me to this collection was it's a, almost a beat for beat, right? Response conversation um, with the Mm -hmm. gospel. And I'm used to seeing collections centered around a central idea, maybe the incarnation, or something that's structured around like the church calendar. But this feels to me a little bit more like sitting in a church service week after week, hearing someone preach through a book of the Bible. And so from the poetry side, that's really interesting to me because it brings up a lot of questions and you can take this Mm -hmm. wherever you want. Um, (laughs) So I'll just throw a bunch of them at you. Um, I'm really interested in how do you determine where to break? Some of your poems respond to just a word or a short, short, tiny passage. And other ones, you take long swaths of the original text. So I'm interested in that, how you determine that. And then also, how do you work so that each poem still stands on its own? Because you're putting this sort of self-imposed structure on it. Mm-hmm. So how do they stand on their own? And then how do they work together to be cohesive outside of, you know, the source material, I guess? So mm-hmm. I just want to know how you do this. That's that's my big question. <laughs> yeah. So I, I write poetry outside of this sort of structure that, you know, so it's very different. But when I was working on this, I would I would come to the text and just start reading through. And what was most important for me was, just pay attention to what stops you, mm-hmm. right? And um, free yourself of the the impulse to want to write a commentary on this mm-hmm. on this thing 
but just respond to it as a human being in conversation with human beings in the text, right? Like just, just do that. And, and, and so I think that in and of itself was just a different way for me to read. Um, and like you said, sometimes it was a whole like swath of text, but uh, other times it was just a word. And to me, it was like, okay, that's, that's okay. Because that's what's, that's what's happening in this moment. That's what's rising up in me internally. Let's see where this poem wants to go. So how I, how I write is I'm, I usually will get like a, a opening line and not necessarily know where it's going. And so sometimes I'll, you know, I'll be reading the text and there's that line that'll come and I'll write it down and I might not come back to it until much later. Let sort of that line do what it wants to do uh, and then return and see, okay, what's, what, what's happening? Like, what is this? And also like, what is this poem revealing about the questions that I'm asking internally, the wrestles that I, you know, the things that I'm wrestling with. Um, so especially in this new collection, there's a lot of grief that surfaces for me, right? As um, even in that first poem in the book, uh, the title poem, Touch the Earth, right? That's the, the text there is about Jesus sending out his disciples for the first time to, to put into practice what he has been teaching them, to, to go out and teach. He sends them out in twos. And as I'm reading that, though, what that triggers for me is, one, thinking about my dad, who... I, I dedicated this book to him and I, and I said, you know, he's the, the person who taught me that faith is more than talk. Right. And so, so much of what I learned from him was observing, uh, observing him. But I thought I started to think about the ways that he demonstrated for me what it looked like to love uh, and to grieve the way he loved my mom and grieved her when, when she passed away um, almost 10 years ago. And so it's like, on just a sort of surface reading of that text, like that doesn't pop out at somebody, but like, for me, it was like, okay, I have to pay attention to what's going on emotionally for me in this moment and be okay with bringing that to the text and saying, how is this, how am I in conversation with this right now? And what poem was to come out of this? Yeah. Mm. And I think to your second question too, just about how the poems stand on their own, but also fit together into some mm -hmm. sort of cohesive, you know, it's interesting. Cause like, I, I guess part of it was just trusting that there would be a sense of cohesion because I didn't, it wasn't something that I was like very much consciously thinking about. I got to make all of these fit together. There was sort of like, I know that there are different themes that are, that are coming out, but the thread that's tying them through is, I, I guess it's it's me wrestling with what it looks like, what it feels like, what it sounds like when all of the stuff of, you know, that I've been learning over the years of faith and love and life and grief and joy, like what what does it look like and feel like when that stuff like gets into the dirt of real life? And so however that wants to come out on the page, that will be the thread that, that runs through. Um, I hope people can see it and feel that, you know, so that's part of the, that's part of the discovery of, for a reader of saying what is what is running through this this these poems. Yeah, I think that works really well and I really appreciate that cuz I am a fan of write for myself when I am struggling with writing and revising to impose some sort of structure on it. Mm -hmm. Um and so I think that the connection between the source material and that 
that explicit structure probably works to actually free up other things um, mm-hmm. and let them shine. And so I, that's one of my favorite parts of the book is seeing how what could be something making it very rote is actually allows the poems to breathe in some way. Mm, yeah, I love that. This, I think this ties in. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I want to tie it in through uh, mentioning Langston Hughes and and the kind of multivocal poetry that that he uses, voices, um, mm-hmm. oftentimes from Harlem. Um, and so, you know, the various aspects of your experience that go into the poems. But I, I hit the line. I have known mountains, and I'm like, oh, Langston Hughes is here. And also, in some of the rhymes, the the way that you use sound in the poems. And obviously, there's a lot of other. Poets and writers referenced um, mm-hmm. ta Coates, Kiazi Lehman, Mary Oliver, Margaret Atwood, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, on and on, right? Um, mm-hmm. And the, the multiple voices and influences that, that go into, into the poems. But I'm wondering, you know, that's what I saw. I'm wondering about who, who are your influences and how do you, how do you interact with those voices uh, when you write? Yeah, it's really important for me to, to, to bring many voices to the page. I think all of us who are writers, I mean, whether we acknowledge it or not, we're, we're, we're writing in community, right? There's, there's so many voices that we bring with us when we sit down and write something down. And it, it's interesting because when you say, um, you came to the line, I have no mountains, and immediately you're like, Langston Hughes is there, right? When I wrote that poem, I wasn't th- I wasn't thinking, mm-hmm. oh, let me put a Langston Hughes reference in here. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I'll say is that poem, right? Um, the Negro speaks of rivers, right? I've known rivers, right? That 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 is probably my favorite poem, right? And so it's just in me. It's like something mm-hmm. that I, and, and so I wasn't consciously thinking of let me let me make this reference here. But yeah, it's one of those things where I guess you discover sort of how much you're in conversations with different writers and poets when you start to write something down and how much they're influencing the things that you're putting down on the page. And so, I mean, I, I just, I love being able to introduce people to other writers and, and poets, uh, whether it's through a, a reference here or an epigraph there or say, Hey, go, go read this poem, go, go check out this person. It's just, I think, especially as someone who is writing, inside of, you know, as, as, as part of the church, the faith community, I am just a huge proponent of like, we need to be reading, we need to be reading poets, right? We need to be reading more and more poets. And so any way that I can get you to pick up some more poetry, I'm going to, I want to do that. Uh, so it's, yeah. So I, some of the best conversations that I have off of this book are, Hey, who would you recommend that I go read? And I'm just like, here they are, you know? Yeah, there are so many people that find themselves uh, in these in these poems, in these pages, different references that I'm making. Part of that, I will also say, comes from just being formed within the lineage of hip-hop, right? And so hip-hop uh, as, as a genre of art, and, I mean, I think a, lo- a lot of art does this, but hip-hop is very explicit about it, is that hip-hop is always pointing back to those who've come before who have influenced this particular thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just sort of part of what what makes hip hop great is it's like, you know, we're part of this lineage, so I can borrow this line from this person and reference this thing, even though I'm not necessarily 
recreating what they're doing. I'm building on what they've done. And I'm, I'm, I'm acknowledging that they're part of my formation as an artist. Right. So yeah, it, it's, I think that that's just a part of it. And I even find, I find that within the, within the scriptures too, right. When you, when you see so many of like the references to like the prophets and the this and like prophets borrowing from other prophets and this, and it's like, no, we're part of a lineage. We're part of a community we're not writing in isolation. And so that's, I think that's part of what I'm trying to say too with that is that this is, this is a communal offering of all of the people who have helped to form me as a writer. Yes. I mean, speaking of voice, would you, would you read a couple of poems for us? Yeah. We're, we're, um, we're dying to hear you read to, to, to have that second piece of, of the poetry come off the page in your voice. Yeah, I would, I would love to. So the first, this poem I'll read, uh, this was one that for me is, I, I read it often as a poem that I'm paying attention to just the rhythm and the movement of it. I, I love to read this one out loud. Um, this one's called Under the Ground. And this one was written in reflection on Luke 24, 1 through 12, which is the resurrection account. Uh, this poem has an epigraph, uh, a quote from Dr. Barbara Holmes's book, Race in the Cosmos. And she says, in the beginning, there is darkness. It is the womb out of which we are born. In this state of trusting refuge, the light of divine revelation, which pierces but does not castigate the darkness, may finally be seen. This is a mothering darkness that nurses its offspring. Under the ground. Life is always happening underground, the place light has forsaken. Finite minds cannot take in that the belly of Mother Earth is indeed a womb. Entombed in the soil is the pip of a new Eden. Only the seed that has fallen into the pit can burst through into the morning dew to announce to weeping eyes that a new day has risen. A day in which the voices and stories of women are believed, their word received as good news. And the men have no problem following them and learning how to believe again. What I mean is this. The world has been flipped on its head. Heaven has invaded hell. The spell of death is broken and the doorway open to a new way of being. It all begins with seeing that the darkness of our world is luminous and in the humus of life is where we become fully human. Mm. Thank you. I'm struck by this poem as the kind of, uh, you, you referenced the, you know, the very first poem and obviously we have, we have touched the earth as the title, but, um, mm -hmm. You know, the earthiness of these two poems seem like a, a I mean, a really lovely, um, I know it's not the last poem, but a, but kind of a, a bookend. Um, mm -hmm. Did you feel that? you feel like that this was a completion? Does it, does it feel like that one, where did that one come in the process? Like, um, you know, does it, how do you think about it thematically tying in there? Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely one of those that feels like a bookend. It feels mm -hmm. like it's tying together some themes from the entire 
collection, the whole idea of becoming fully human. What does it mean to be fully human is definitely a, a resounding theme throughout. Um, I, it, it ties directly to the, uh, the quote that I have that sort of, you know, flies over the entire collection uh, from St. Irenaeus, the glory of God as a human being fully alive. Right. Mm-hmm. And this one, you know, to, to go back to the point about like the other voices that we're in conversation with, I mean, this one is obviously uh, Dr. Barbara Holmes, but even beyond that, because she's in conversation with Howard Thurman in this um, and, and his writing around the luminous darkness. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, yeah, just it, it definitely felt like a bookend, like, OK, this is this is the the direction that things are moving. But it's the question of, mm-hmm. of this collection, touch the earth of what does it mean for us to be fully alive human beings mm-hmm. um, in all of our diversity, um, you know, within our own selves and all of the parts of us? What does it mean for us to be fully human, fully alive? Um, yeah. Yeah, I like to go back to something that Howard sort of touched on, and that is sound. Um, mm-hmm. I have some categorizations that are not unique to me. I think it's from Tony Hoagland about the different kinds of poets that there are. And there's the, you know, the gut poets, your Sharon Olds, your head mm-hmm. poets, your Jory Grahams. And then I would say, like, I find your work to be the poetry of the mouth. It's about sound, it's about rhythm, about cadence, about word choice. Um, and so I would love for you just to talk about how. How do you get there? How do you revise for that? What does that look like for you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I I think first of all, it does go back to my love for and formation in hip hop culture, right? Is like I so I'm the youngest of four boys, and my older brothers like I just I grew up with sitting in the back seat of their cars as they're you know playing all sorts of stuff, and like I always said, there are two types of hip hop listeners. There are first those who are drawn to the beat and there are those who are drawn to the lyrics, the words. And I was always a lyrics person. I was always interested in how words fit together to tell a story, the musicality of the words themselves, different rhyme schemes. And uh, yeah, it just sort of drew me in. And so I think when I, when I write poetry, that's sort of my natural bent is to just first pay attention to the musicality of the poem, right? There's music in this. I, I want, I want people to be able to feel the music in them when they're reading them. And I, I think there is something to poems being read out loud. So even, mm-hmm. even when I am just reading on my own, I will tend to read poems out loud because I think there's something sonically that happens where you you experience the poem differently when you're saying the words out loud versus when you're just saying it in your head. Uh, And I think that there's something uh, uh, that poetry, like poets intend for that to be the case, right? There's a different experience on the page versus when you're hearing it. Um, But there's also like this fine line between how do you, how does a poem, is is there a way for a poem to both work on the page and read aloud? Is that something, and and I think that, you know, poets are always trying to strike that line, that balance of saying, you know, we want it to work in both places. And so when I'm writing a poem, I'm also reading it a million times out loud. Um, Does it work here, but does it sound? How does it sound? How does it feel? 
Um, those aren't things that you can you can necessarily pick up on by just writing it and saying, okay, it's done. Or you have to to sit with it and sit with the sound of it and the movement of it. And so sometimes that does require saying, as I'm reading it, like it, a word might work if I'm writing it, but then when I read it, it's like, mm-hmm. oh, it doesn't flow. It doesn't feel, it doesn't feel right. So let me find something different that still makes sense and still fits what I'm trying to say, but the feel is there too, you know? Um, and so I say, so I think part of revision is just reading it aloud over and over again. Yeah. You know, I'm teaching poetry and we're coming up to, you know, closed form and, um, mm-hmm. you know, so this, the salty guzzle, um, mm-hmm. that you write, you know, I was like, Oh, here's, you know, and, but there's a lot of questions about form. There's right. The, the box, the, lot of spaces, uh, the more prose poems. So yeah, that is a good connection point, right? You're, you're conscious of how it sounds, but you're not there to read it, right? The word, the words do the work themselves. So, and I, you know, I'm struck by the wide ranging number of forms you've got here. So, you know, how do you think about pouring it into that form or finding a form or, or, um, the range of forms that you find, how, how did, how do you think about that? that those ranges yeah i think it varies sometimes it's it's really the content of the poem that drives the form for me like the thing that that i feel like the poem is wanting to say and 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 so i'm always asking the question can form somehow enhance what i'm trying to say uh can it can it make it can it commute can something about form communicate this more clearly right and then sometimes i'm just trying like I, i it's just because i'm interested in trying out a form and so I'm like, let's just explore where this wants to go. I'm interested in, you know, trying this thing. So to give you an example of of those things, right? Like the the salty guzzle, the that one. Um, so that that poem is written in reflection on when Jesus talks about being salt of the earth, us being salt of the earth, right? And so there was something about that that when I read it, the word flavor just popped up. Like what? Like oh, like this idea of like flavoring something, you know, matters. Um, and it was just kind of that word kept coming back. And and then, so the form, the guzzle, the, the huzzle, the, that Persian form where it, you keep coming back to that repeated sound and that repeated word, I was like, okay, there's a way for me to work this in that, that the form will enhance it to keep coming back to this repeated flavor, 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 and to, you know, to bring that out. And then there was just like, that allowed me to have a sort of playfulness with it. That poem for me is, I had a lot of fun writing it. And yeah, there's a, there's a joy that sort of is woven into it. Not, not all of them are the same, but I felt like the form allowed me to sort of explore that in a different way. And then there's some, some other ones. That I, there's one in my first collection that I wrote called uh, As Children Do that it's not necessarily a... a so I was inspired by the poet Jericho Brown and his duplex form that he came up with, that he created, where you are using the the line of the previous couplet to start off the next one in some form or variation. And that sort of continues through the poem. And I just was taken by that. And, um, and so it's not maybe exactly a duplex, but it's a play on a duplex to just explore. Uh, I was like, there's something about this that I feel like can communicate the thing that I'm trying to communicate. So I think there's just paying attention to how form can help communicate something. 
So you have a lovely short poem in which you write something like the line between imagination and prayer is as thin as air. Not sure if that's mm-hmm. the exact poem. I don't have it in front of me. Um, yeah. But uh, that line has lodged itself in my memory, both when I write and also when I pray. And mm-hmm. I wonder if you could say more about this. And uh, I have a friend who teaches songwriting, and I've also often heard him say something like, you know, songs should be less like sermons and more like prayers. And I'm always offended mm. as a preacher, you know, <laughs> a preach, preaching can be poetic too, right? Um, but I get what he's saying. And so I've sort of asked you about poems and preaching, but I wonder about poems and prayer. How do you understand your creative work in relationship to prayer? Uh, do you consider your yeah. poems to be prayer? Are you in that same space? Uh, maybe unpack that a bit for us. Yeah, well, so... I'll say that poem really came out of reading as I was reading the text and the disciples asked Jesus teaches how to pray. They're like, there's something about prayer that they're interested in there. And Jesus's reply to them is imagine this, right? And he tells them the story mm. to teach them about prayer, right? There's something there that they're, and, or suppose this, right? There's, there's a, and I was mm. just kind of captured by that, that, to explain p- prayer was to invite into imagination, invite mm-hmm. into story. And I was like, there's something there that's capturing me about prayer itself, that there is this sort of imaginative element about prayer. And when I say that, I mean, you know, I, I really think that the whole idea of being a part of proclaiming the kingdom of God is this invitation to this deeper imagination of something more beautiful, more just, more whole, more loving than we're, than, than sometimes we see right now. And the, the invitation to become like children is to say, can you have the imagination to see beyond this, to see mm. past this, to see that there's, there's a whole nother world that's possible. Can you see it? Can you imagine it? Can you touch it? Right. And, and I think every time we pray, right, it's to say, can we imagine it? Can we touch it? Can we taste it? Mm-hmm. And, and so, yeah, it's just that, that sort of invitation into that imagination. And I think every time we pray, we're invited into that sort of holy imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, but yeah, I do think that there is a, like when I write poems, right, I think a lot about what Mary Oliver said about poetry and prayer. And when and she says about prayer, um, I don't know what a prayer is. I know how to pay attention, right? And that there's mm. that that paying attention and prayer and poetry are sort of all like one of, one of a, the same thing, right? That I've discovered that poems emerge out of attention, um, whether it's paying attention to my own interior landscape or paying attention to what's going on in the space between me and another person. There's a line in um, the poet Elizabeth Alexander. She's got a, a, a Ars Poetica where she she says, and I'm going to get it wrong, uh, but she says, poetry is the dust in the corner, right? It's like paying attention to the, the small detail of the corner of the room that was very easy to pass by but it draws you in and it has something to say. It's saying something to you in this moment, right? A poem emerges out of that, right? And uh, and I think too, prayer often emerges out of those places when we're paying attention to those small things that emerge in us or the small interactions between us and another person that, yeah, the, the most, yeah, prayer can emerge out of that just like a poem wants to emerge. And are they the same thing? I mean, maybe, 
Sure. Like I, I often see my poems as prayers when I'm writing them. Like this is a, maybe it's a lament or maybe it's just an expression of joy, or maybe it's a question that I'm wrestling with. Like that's what prayer is. Is it not right? So it's, it's, um, yeah. You know, speaking of that power of imagination and imagining the kingdom of God beyond what we have, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm struck in teaching there are times, yeah, where we live out here in the, in the prairie, former prairie, um, you know, we have mile by mile squares and, and I'll say to students, imagine something different. And they're like, mm. what, 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 what do you mean? What else would you do? Yeah. Um, and so whether it's, you know, mile by mile squares out here or city blocks or projects or policing, um, you know, the systems that, that become so ingrained that we can't imagine something different. But then also you mentioned in a couple of poems that, you know, even theology kind of can become these systems that, that, mm-hmm. that shouldn't confine. Um, and so the whole tradition of artists in the church and artists being the imaginative visionaries, seeing things, um, you know, artists have not always found a place in the church. And especially uh, it's still in me when you come to scripture and you imagine it differently, mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, sometimes having the voice that's saying, well, you can't do that with scripture in the back of my own head. So Mm -hmm. I'm wondering um, what traditions or ideas about scripture helped you or deterred you, you know, what, what voices are back there for you as well, as you thought about bringing imagination to scripture as you, as you write these poems. Absolutely. Um, Well, when I wrote the, when I started writing the first collection, God Speaks Through Wombs, I very, you know, intentionally was interested in one, I I said, and I I wrote this in the introduction to that collection that I, you know, I wanted to bring my full self as, as a black man navigating the landscape of American empire. I wanted to bring that in conversation with the text of Luke because so much of what has been communicated to me throughout the years is that, you know, when you come to reading the text, you have to check that part of you at the door, that there's some sort of way to interpret the text that is disconnected from who you are. And I, I've just come to discover that that's a lie. Like there is no interpretation outside of, like we all have lenses through which we're reading and interpreting. We all have so, so, social locations that we're reading from. And that's not necessarily, that's not a bad thing, but it's the thing that needs to be acknowledged, right? We need to acknowledge the lenses that we have. We need to acknowledge and, you know, be conscious of them, bring them together to the table of interpretation and say, okay, what are we hearing? What are we hearing? Right? Because yes, we all, we all are coming with different things. And so I I wanted to bring that. I wanted to, to bring the, the voices of my mother and my father, right? And my culture and all of those things is to just say, okay, like, Jesus, what are you saying? <laughs> um, and what does it sound like for poetry today to to rise out of a reading of the gospel text? Just like the sort of the, the tradition of the, the Psalms, right? The, the songs and the poems of the, of the Psalms, the Psalter, so much of those rising out of interactions with Torah, right? They're not commentary on the Torah. But if you look at the five books of the Psalter, right, there is a rabbinic tradition that says those are in conversations with the five books of Torah, right? And so 
you know, that that was where the idea originally came was just, okay, I'm sitting in book two of the Psalms, right? Uh, which this this book, you know, starts off and, you know, my soul, like my soul is thirsting for God, dry and weary land and all of these sorts of things. And it's like, okay, I can read that as just um, an individual talking about their experience of God or longing for God. But what happens when I put that in conversation with Exodus? How does that change how I'm hearing this and interacting with this song? Oh, well, now I'm hearing uh, the, the cries of generations of those who are enslaved longing for God, long asking why, you know, why are you downcast? God, where are you? And all these sorts of things. And then it becomes resonant in a whole different way, even with my own sort of communal and ancestral story. Right. And so I'm bringing that to the text and just like my ancestors who, as they were being told what they could and could and could not interact with in the text and how they were supposed to hear it, them having the imagination to say, but that's not, but that's not the God that we've come to discover. So, you know, like there has to be something more here. There's, there's gotta be something different here. And um, so, yeah, it was just kind of bringing all of those things in and saying, you know, I, I don't, I, I want to sort of take off the, the, the voices that have told me you're not allowed to do that and just say, but, but why not? You know, and mm. let that, you know, be a part of the conversation that we're all having collectively with this text that has been forming us and shaping us over the years. And yeah, so that's why I say this is not meant to be a commentary, but it's sort of in the tradition of Midrash, if it's anything. It's it's let's let's talk with the text. Let's say that there can be more than one meaning in a particular text because there can be, right? It doesn't have to just say this one thing. Yeah. I was going to say, that sounds like it's time for, for a, read us another one. Yeah. So this one, this one's called Situation Ethics. And this is written in reflection on Luke 16, verse one through nine, which is the parable of the unjust or how unjust steward, unjust manager, I, I don't, you know, depending on what translation you read. Um, but there is an epigraph for this poem too, from Cheryl Sanders, who's, uh, she had, I don't know if she still is, she's a scholar at Harvard, um, but her book, Empowerment Ethics for Liberated People. And she says, uh, Albert J. Rabito notes that lying and deceit, normally considered moral vices, were virtues to slaves in their dealings with whites. This radical reversal in moral reasoning was fueled by the basic conviction that the only morally appropriate response to the deception and depravity of slaveholders was to make every effort not to fulfill the ultimate objective of their efforts. That is to produce hardworking, honest, and submissive slaves. Situation ethics. When I sit long enough with my bones, I discover stories. Like a paleontologist, I use the fine-haired brush of my intuition to uncover things I never knew existed. In my lineage are ancestors who lived by a different set of ethics, with ankles and wrists pressed against the chains of enslavement. They made decisions that some today might call questionable. Question. Who sets the standard of morality? God? Who's God? The one who sovereignly ordained these chains? Well then, back to these bones. 
Booker T told a story about his mother waking him at midnight to eat a chicken secured from an unknown source. Of course, he meant the master. Mother could not fathom her children's mouths remaining empty while they feasted up at the big house on the food she had raised. We call God immutable which usually means we refuse to change our view of God. Let every deception be in service of heaven. Drew, it's been such a pleasure having you on the podcast, talking about your poetry. The volume is entitled Touch the Earth, Poems on the Way. It's the second uh, of a two-volume series. The first is God Speaks Through Wombs. Uh, Both are published by InterVarsity Press. Uh, Drew, thank you again for joining us on the In All Things podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the In All Things podcast from the Andreas Center at Dort University. Original music is provided by The Ruralist, and thanks are in order to Ruth Clark, Shannon Vischer, Vaughn Donahue, and the production team at the Andreas Center. You can find us online at inallthings.org or follow us on Twitter under the name at in underscore all underscore things. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. And if you find our content beneficial, please help us out by leaving a review and sharing with others. Thanks for tuning in. Mm -hmm.